Welcome to Sales in the Subscription Economy, Season 1, Episode 8. I'm Amanda Northcutt of SubscriptionCoach.com, and today I'm interviewing Dallas Hoganson. Dallas is coming at us with an enviable sales leadership resume. He's held four VP of sales positions, is a two-time founder, highly sought-after consultant, active mentor and advisor, and chairman and chapter head of both the Denver and Phoenix chapters of Revenue Collective. He has also been named one of the top 100 sales coaches in technology and has been recognized for building one of the top 10 cultures in technology sales. Dallas is currently the chief business officer at Felix, building the world's largest industrial marketplace. Dallas, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, man. I appreciate you having me today. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you share some sales wisdom. And uh, with that, let's dive into the first question. Tell us a little bit about your sales career, where you've been, uh, how you got to where you are now, and a little bit about Revenue Collective. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I don't think the journey is too uncommon for, for a lot of people in kind of my space is that, you know, it started back in 2011 and 2012, where I had spent a couple of years uh, in the finance world. And what was interesting about that is that the, the fund that we had was predominantly focused on a fixed income strategy. And so for me, you know, I was really evaluating kind of new, like alpha driven plays for the portfolio. And, and that kind of led me to focus on like the technology space. And so I was spending, you know, five, 10, 12 hours a day, just trying to understand what was happening, what companies were being built. And then, you know, which ones were really going to market and that were kind of, you know, exciting, not only like syndication opportunities, but investment opportunities for the portfolio. And you know, at that point, I just I fell in love with this idea of building and building revenue. And so, you know, I left I left my job in the finance world. I moved down to Silicon Valley and, you know, I started my journey on the couch. And what I knew right away was that it's going to be incredibly important for me to pick a team, an industry and an opportunity that allows me to do a couple things, like to make a lot of mistakes very quickly so I can learn you know, how to be very good at what I do. And so I actually spent my first role as an account executive at a company called Rocket Lawyer. And the reason why I chose that was really because of a couple key things is that the market was incredibly important at this time. And like the one major competitor was um, LegalZoom, which you've probably heard of and most people have. But for me, what was interesting there is that it was a market that was kind of antiquated and fragmented, fragmented in how like the previous options were for buying a solution like that, which was legal help or documentation. And so I knew that people were either going to stick with their current process or they had nothing or they needed something cheap and easy to access. And so it was going to be very emotional for me. And so I could connect right away, you know, as an account executive with the individual, because most of the time when they're coming to you, their problem has already happened and they needed it yesterday. Mm -hmm. And also the fact is that we were selling such a low, like average sales price it was going to allow me to make a hundred phone calls a day. And I knew that from someone who came from the finance world, I had no idea how to sell anything. And so I needed to make those mistakes and hear those feedback loops, you know, as fast as possible. And so for me, it was really the introduction into my kind of sales career. And, you know, something I tell everybody to do today is go take that job. That's, you know, really uncomfortable and awful and make sure you learn how to make mistakes quickly and have the opportunity, you know, to do that. And funny, and funny enough from that is I would get in there, I would take the 509 bus every morning uh, downtown San Francisco. It was always one other person on the bus with me. And I would go into the office, I would turn on the lights, I would make coffee. And I learned very quickly that 
you know, our inbound distribution model or a round table uh, around Robin was, you know, open in the morning. And so I would get there and I would take all the inbound calls and I would hit quota essentially before everybody came to the office. Nice. And so I realized that, okay, if I can take care of the base level metrics that, you know, I am required to do, well, that actually gives me a lot of free time to really start understanding the economics of how this business actually works. And so every single day I would get on LinkedIn, I would reach out to, you know, one to four people, depending on how much time I had and kind of ask them questions about like the business model that I was currently in. So for example, was that, you know, how were you guys creating, you know, a top of like a, a demand funnel that had an ASP like this, it had a conversion rate like this. And I would offer to buy them coffee or, you know, lunch to hear their strategies because I would ask them questions that would allow them to talk about their business. Mm -hmm. And so right away, you know, I started breaking all the records in, in the, in the company, like the most deals done in a day, like the largest amount, like the highest amount, things like that. And I realized very quickly that, okay, I kind of figured out version one of this. Like, how do you, how do you talk to a customer, understand their pain, and then drive them to an end result? And um, lucky enough, I had done so much outreach at my time there as I started to meet everybody in San Francisco. And that kind of led me to my first opportunity as an executive where someone took a chance on me to be the VP of sales and expansion at a, at a company called iCracked. And they had just, you know, raised $10 million from Andreessen, one of the top, you know, sales, I mean, one of the top venture capital firms mm -hmm. in the world. And, you know, I don't know why they hired me. I think we just got along, but I think they, they kind of saw like the drive that I had that like I was going to do whatever I could to possibly, and to possibly figure this out. And so really that first year, I think I read 150 ish books, <laughs> you know, like I, yeah. I, I would not stop like digesting anything I possibly could about leadership sales or just like startups. And I look back on that time and like, I'm really thankful for that because like when I look at that, you know, I realized very quickly that someone spent their whole life, you know, putting their thoughts into something that I can digest in four or five hours. And that was like a very valuable thing to recognize where depending on the problem that I was facing, someone had probably solved it better than I would have. And so like, why not take steel and kind of copy and then iterate on those kind of frameworks and pieces and kind of make it into my own, you know, process down the road. So, you know, got lucky enough where we had quite a bit of success at iCracked and uh, the business grew very quickly from, you know, one to one to 30 million. And, and we had like, you know, I was employee number eight. We quickly had over a hundred employees. And, oh. and at that time, <coughs> excuse me. And at that time, you know, I had, it started to, you know, even expand my network from there and started investing in companies and advising in companies and things like that. And I uh, started to work with um, a good friend of mine on another marketplace business called Lively, where, you know, it was a, a very strong, talented group of individuals who uh, you know, really had some past success. And we were able to kind of take this idea of building a marketplace for hiring within, you know, the, at first it was the restaurant economy and, and built a better mousetrap for how they were hiring and staffing employees. And, you know, ultimately we ended up selling off the assets of that business and, um, you know, had a good result there. But at that time, um, Lyft had reached out to me as they were starting their B2B team. And, you know, this was a really interesting opportunity to me because I've only known Lyft as a consumer. And 
you know, when I went to Lyft, um, I joined uh, just after their chief business officer did, David Vaga, who now is a CLO at Lightspeed Ventures. And really our job was to take this idea and build it from scratch. And there was really nothing in place there. And so, you know, luckily enough, I got to experience what that growth looks like from a company from, you know, 300, less than 300 people when I joined to, you know, 3000 in a couple of years. Yeah. And it's just one of those things that it's, it's, you know, I hope everybody gets a chance to experience something in, in that kind of, you know, swim lane, but uh, like the value you get from going that fast, breaking, building organizations and thinking about strategies that ultimately change 30 days later is an incredible way to kind of build like a skill set on how to evaluate um, different markets and, and different teams and different strategies and things like that. So, you know, you spent a, spent a handful of years there. Um, and then when I, when I moved to New York, I actually worked with a company based out of uh, Europe called Impraise, which was a feedback um, and kind of like an employee management system. And the reason I went there was actually another Y Combinator company like I cracked, and they were working on something that was really important to me was how do we give feedback to employees and how do we give real time feedback? And so we can adjust in real time. And this is something that I kind of always have taken with me from my collegiate sports days is that as an athlete, you're watching film all the time. And so you're always analyzing every step or, you know, every play. And it's something we just don't do in the working world. And so, you know, for me, it was like, how do we translate that into the performance of the people in our organizations? And how do we give them the ability to look at what they do in real time and, and make adjustments? And so they can always act in, you know, or grow in a way that's beneficial to them without being kind of put down from like a bad performance review or a bad feedback process. Mm. And then, uh, so, I mean, the journey is going to take me all over. I mean, it's been the last decade between San Francisco and New York and, and Europe. And, you know, luckily enough, I've had the chance to build a few organizations myself in the sales technology space and, and really within the membership economy. And, and today, you know, kind of what brings us to, we're talking about like the revenue collective where um, today it's a, a group of about 1500 um, sales technology executives from CROs, VPs, COOs, uh, CMOs and things like that, where we're, uh, you know, a consortium of knowledge where we talk about the best practices and going to market. And we talk about all the things that, you know, we do as operators to not only protect ourselves and our jobs, but how do we really take the best practices of people that have been in our swim lanes? And so we don't have to go make those mistakes as we go to market with a new organization or mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, that's an incredible organization. I definitely hope we get to talk more about that. Can I interrupt you and ask you a couple of quick questions to dive into your background just a little bit more? Yeah, please. So as a, obviously you've had a pretty phenomenal career trajectory and you have risen to the top very quickly. um, And you've done that very strategically. And I'm I'm very impressed by that. I, I can see as a college athlete, how you developed a tremendous amount of grit and resilience. So that's obviously a phenomenal trait for a salesperson to have very early on. Um, but what about, uh, to what do you attribute your fail fast mentality and how did you know to network the way that you did straight out of the gate? I feel like Keith Ferrazzi's book, Never Eat Alone was like the first one on your list when you moved to Silicon Valley or something. How did you, how did you know to do that? Oh yeah. Great. Um, great book. Um, you know, it's a really good question. And I, I think it was, is I had no, I had no ego around anything is that I knew that I didn't know what I didn't know. 
And the only way that I was going to get there was number one, building these incredible relationships with people. And so I could start establishing trust and, you know, start getting in the networks and inner circles of these individuals because they dictated your availability to get to opportunities. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think a lot of people overlook, and to this day, I've actually never used a resume for a job. And when I talk to younger individuals who are looking at jobs or going into the job market, they're so concerned about that. And obviously, I think it matters, you know, for the first kind of one or two roles that you mm -hmm. have. But, you know, after that is you're, you're going to get the best opportunities the quickest if you know, if you build those relationships with people that start to trust your opinion, because they're going to come to you. And, and so basically what I was optimizing for was how do I get there as fast as possible? And the easiest way for me to do that was to strategically reach out and ask a question that was going to allow them to talk. And not to be, not be about me, but really be about curiosity and um, vulnerability. Because if I could be vulnerable, I think they could relate to me. And if mm -hmm. I was curious, they would want to share openly. And so when I was framing everything that I was doing, you know, I really came from, like, I would love to learn and help you. And then hopefully one day, you know, it'll mean something. And so all of the questions that I did, all of the events or all of the coffees or, or lunches I did were specifically around, around that, because if I could get them to talk about why they were doing what they were doing, um, you know, for the most part, they were happy to share and they were excited that I was there to listen. Hmm. That's awesome. That's so great to approach people with a beginner's mindset like that and humility and you're not going to try and sell them something. So that's kudos. That was a very... Um, <laughs> smooth move on your part early in your career. Very well done. Thank you. And to your point, actually, like I still today will never try to sell people on things. It's, it's like, you know, how do we agree that this is a good option for both of us? And like, mm -hmm. if we agree that's, a, that's it, we can move forward. But I, um, I still am adamant against not being kind of like your traditional salesman, because I think that's the wrong approach at the end of the day. We're human beings. And you know, there's also there's all types of internal motivations that we have. And I think it's agreeing on what those internal motivations are to see if it's a right fit. And if it's not, it's okay, we move on and we go forward. But if it's something we can help each other with, and we agree it is, it's, it's, it's a very valuable relationship that will withstand uh, not just a single transaction. Absolutely. Well said. And we can talk about that a little bit more in a minute about um, setting expectations for recurring revenue customers. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm adamantly against the sort of bro sales culture and wish that salespeople were known for being consultative. And um, that's it. <laughs> and then going forward when it works for both parties and not anything sleazy. But anyway, is there anything else you want to add about your background or revenue collective right now before we move on? Yeah, I just think it's, you know, it's, it's interesting to see the, the growth of the Re Revenue Collective. It's been, you know, a purely organic growth organization where that, that type of thing, I think, is incredibly exciting is because what we figured out there is, you know, what is that kind of magic loop that the customer needs to, like, really be engaged with our platform? And because of that, like, we really created virality that has cost us, you know, almost zero marketing dollars today as an organization. And so we really look at that as like the driver of like the value of the organization because people are helping people and referring people because they're feeling value and getting help from other people in the organization. And so I just think it's really interesting when we think about and talk about the subscription economy today and like what, how to think about what happens when a customer comes to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very cool. So 
I love that you're an avid reader. Um, tell me what sources you rely on to stay up to date on the sales and sales management profession. Yeah, so I think it's, you know, I think it's changed today. It's, it's a lot more podcasts than, it, than it's been in the past where I think I probably still have, you know, 20 or 30 uh, bookmarks around different uh, websites that I, that I attend. But you know, I find myself enjoying uh, a few things is that I spend a lot of my time reading articles that are around, um, you know, venture capital or macroeconomic uh, forces today. And I do a lot of that with aggregation through pocket and medium. Mm-hmm. Reason is, is because they uh, recommend different things for me and therefore I don't have to do a lot of time searching for things. Right. And, and so I'll, I'll spend, you know, 20, 30 minutes a day kind of looking at in the morning over coffee, but reality is what I do now is a lot of podcasts during the day is because you can digest a lot more and it doesn't disrupt the flow of kind of like your current work environment. And so I, you know, I actually really enjoy things that are focused around the inner, like interviewing top performers or like high important performers in their lives. So like the James Altucher show is probably one of my favorite at the moment. Um, and then Kevin Rose, who I've really admired as an entrepreneur, whenever he posts, like I really enjoy kind of spending time with him, but you know, I spend a lot of time listening to like the 20 minute VC or a 16s podcast and things like that, where, you know, they have a much broader macro view and they have some really intelligent people telling stories where, uh, you know, I can take one or two things away from every one of those conversations. Yeah, that's great. I'll definitely link up to um, all of those that you just mentioned in the show notes. Are there any others you want to add? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, the one that I do listen to the most is obviously, I think, the Sales Hacker podcast with Sam yeah. Jacob, the founder mm-hmm. of the Revenue Collective. And the reason why I think that's actually really important is uh, you should always understand what your peers are talking about. Um, and it's going to create a lot of value for you and how you communicate with them. And, you know, the things that are kind of on the leading edge is for how they're thinking about things at the, at the moment. It gives you just uh, a snippet of insight into maybe the problems that they're facing on a kind of day-to-day basis. And so like, if you're making a new connection, it's very easy to bridge that gap of value. And so like, I always think it's important, whatever industry you're in is to kind of know the industry podcast and make sure that's just a priority, you know, for you and your daily routine. Absolutely. Empathy, the ability to have empathy right there. Absolutely. Tell me your all-time favorite business books. Uh, easy. Bill Walsh, uh, score takes care of itself is Bill Walsh is one of the best coaches of all time, but he provides this amazing framework for, uh, really just how you attack and build an organization. I think I probably read it seven or eight times at this point. Um, and then uh, Ben Horowitz is, I've always been a kind of a a fanboy of him and the hard things about hard things. And then also Mm -hmm. like high high output management by Andy Grove is, Mm -hmm. I think Silicon Valley staples that give you real, like real talk. Like, this is really how it is. This is how you approach it in wartime versus peace, peacetime. And this is how you look at process and, and how do you scale things like that. So I would say those are probably my you know, three favorite business books um, or the ones I go back to the most at this point. Yeah, great answers. All right, let's dive into more sales-related questions. Have you found working with or on sales teams and recurring revenue organizations different than a traditional one-time transaction sale? Yeah, I think absolutely here. Uh, and the reason why is that when you're looking for recurring revenue, it's about creating customer value. Because as soon as you get that individual on your platform, that's when the real work actually begins because they expect to pay you over time. And the way that that kind of shapes the definition of the organization or the definition of the product is, is wildly different than a lot of times in a very transactional sale where that usually is, 
maybe a document or a single type use um, service. And so therefore, like that customer, one kind of knows what they're buying and is okay with buying it right now. And they're not thinking about it again. But if we're selling something where this customer needs to spend time, we have to be very thoughtful about how we onboard them, how we engage them in kind of like the magic core action when they get on our platform. And so it drives stickiness and usefulness for that individual over time. Because that's where, you know, great businesses are built with exponential growth once they kind of solve that magic loop problem. And mm-hmm. uh, if you look at the best businesses in Silicon Valley or, you know, New York or anywhere, they, they really focused on how do you solve that. Absolutely. Yeah. Expectation setting is a really, really big deal. And I love how you're talking about creating customer value. And yes, the real work does begin once the sale is made. Um, then you have to keep the customer and maximize the lifetime value. It's, it's certainly not a one and done. Yeah. Anything else to add about that? Yeah, I think, you know, the thing to think about, too, is that if you think about like a transactional sale, most of the time it's commoditized at some level, right, where mm-hmm. uh, that it actually creates its own culture in itself, which I don't love as much because most of the time you're doing everything you can for just that, that spot sale. And that can lead to, um, you know, unethical behavior that can lead to shortcuts and things like that just because you're going to do everything you can to get that client across the finish line because you don't have to deal with that person afterwards. And so when I think about just you know, building the teams or working or, or seeing teams that um, are in both uh, swim lanes there, you see the difference and the hiring profiles and the strategies and the leadership and how people think about the thoughtfulness of you know, the teams around there. So you're not, not calling anybody out at, at all, but you know, I, when I think about this, I'd rather spend my time in an organization that's really has long-term focus on the customer. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you've got to, you've got to fight the battle of uh, the race to the bottom if you have a commoditized product or service. So that's a, that's a tough, that's a tough battle to win. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most common changes revenue collective members are making to their businesses in the face of economic challenges brought on by COVID-19? Yeah. So we've been, you know, recently we've been surveying, you know, a lot of the the membership uh, within the organization and, What's been interesting to, for me to see as we started this is back in uh, March, week of March, like 15th or March 19th, we, we, had a, we had about 83% of our member companies said they were impacted just in general by COVID. And today, you know, as our most recent survey of the 16th, that's up to 97%. Oof. And so over time, we're even seeing in this short period of time, a huge increase in the individuals that have just been impacted. And, and because of that, what we found out is that about half have taken pay cuts during that, that period of time. And then about 10% have actually been laid off because of the impact of COVID. And, Whoa. and unfortunately, like we, we understand that this is going to slow things down as we go to market. But uh, one of the most interesting things to, to see from like the, the recent survey that we put in place is that it's about 60% of the organizations have actually a little bit more than 60% have actually adjusted their revenue targets. And that's been downward. About half of that actually today has adjusted their revenue targets by down by more than half. And so what we're seeing is that um, people are rebudgeting, reprioritizing, and um, unfortunately laying off um, a large percentage and not hiring. Mm-hmm. And when they're thinking about quota or compensation and things like that, it's been completely refactored for the most part. And um, they've really asked people to kind of bunk, like, you know, buckle down for a few months until they can figure out how do we go to market again um, 
you know, correctly with the, the, the plan that we had built in early to, in 2020. So it's, it's, we're definitely seeing impact on a, on a global scale as this um, survey, you know, goes over about a hundred different cities globally. But one of the things that, you know, I actually thought was very interesting is that people have actually started spending in different areas and all the things that you can really think about is that we've really seen a, a high transition of growth to spend on webinar strategy, technology, mm-hmm. uh, or digital conferences, or different paid search dynamics. And so that tells me is people are trying to give a message to the market in a different way than they probably never have before. And therefore, they're trying to align, obviously, where, where their buyers are, which is now, you know, in a digital experience. And so I think that's exciting to see because I think that's going to carry over out of this as we're going to have some, some resemblance of a new normal uh, when we come out of, you know, this un- unfortunate event. But it's, it's great to see that people are still, you know, really trying different strategies and, and doubling down spend on things that they traditionally haven't done in the past. And so I, overall, I think the companies are going to come out much stronger in the way they think about a holistic approach to where they spend their money, how they acquire their customers, or how do they communicate ideas, you know, with their industry and customers. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's time to go back to the drawing board and rethink about how we do business and our go-to-market strategies and our value proposition. Um, and I think that companies who who do that and are, are flexible are going to ones going going to be the ones who will emerge uh, in a better place than they were beforehand. And other leaders who are throwing up their hands are going to have a tough road to hoe moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think the, the sentiment that we're hearing too is that I'd probably say it's about 70%, 70 to 75% think it's going to be, you know, nine months plus until yeah. we see um, business expectations kind of return to normal. Yeah. Hoping for that vaccine quickly. <laughs> yeah. What's your best advice for sales teams competing in the subscription economy right now, given the sudden economic downturn? Yeah, I think it's a it's a really interesting question right now. Um, you know, I spent the last couple of weeks, you know, talking to different you know sales teams, uh, venture capital firms, and private equity firms about how they're thinking about their portfolio companies and how they're thinking or asking them to go to market or what that conversation has actually been like. And for predominantly, the answer is we're not really selling right now. What we're trying to do is figure out how do we message value or help our current install base. And I think that's a really interesting way to look at that. That's like my first point is that this is an incredible time to think about how you can really give your core customers a better experience. But when you reach out to the market, it's got to be in a way that is educating them and not exactly kind of selling them on something unless it's, you know, like a Zoom technology where people are just flocking to in droves, right? Mm Because they need that perform their core actions. But the reality is most people don't have a product that is digitally driven and, and has actually been affected by this. And, and so I'm, I'm seeing that uh, from the sales side, people are looking for ways to build empathy in their messaging and try not to come across as, you know, pushing something. But people who are kind of like talking about selling in this environment are doing something really interesting. They're saying, hey, listen, I still have a job to do you know, we, this product really can do X, Y, and Z for you on the things that we spoke about in the past. Is this like still time to engage? And if so, how do we engage properly? And so they're being honest and upfront and pushing the ball forward and, you know, stopping if there's resistance. And I think I've actually liked that approach and kind of to the back end side right now, you're seeing a really good opportunities for companies to rethink about content messaging, um, operational structure and things like that. 
because there's so much downtime, there's no better time right now to kind of organize your operations in a way that'll help you scale out of this thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, anything else on that point? No, you know, I think that's the, the two predominant things that I've seen today. Um, you know, unfortunately, some companies just can't sell in this environment. I've been completely stonewalled. But yeah. if you do have an opportunity, I think you have to be like empathetic. But if you need to sell, like you say, this is why I'm selling um, in, in a way that's respectful. Yes, meet people where they're at and you better do your homework and bring the value to the table okay. from the beginning. Yeah, you, you better do your homework. If not, like it's going to be an ugly situation. If I were to get an email like that, just trying to cold pitch me, I, I, I think I'd probably be furious. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah. You got, like you got your blinders on completely. Uh, yeah. Those are, those are excellent points, Dallas. Um, when you're working with sales teams, how do you address cross-departmental communication uh, within those organizations? So like how intertwined is sales with product marketing, customer success, and then how does that inform the effectiveness of the sales team? Yeah. So this is, you know, something I, I think about a lot and I think a lot of revenue leaders probably do as well. And I think the first thing I kind of want to outline is that I think it really also depends on the stage of where you're at as a business, right? Are you looking for kind of initial product market fit? Um, have you found that? Are you trying to go to market with that and like scale the economics of the business? Or have you really built like a defensible moat and like are really doubling down on growth because they acquired different things at different stages of the business. And I think that's something just in general that everybody should be thinking about on a, at a kind of a higher level is where actually are we and what are the requirements and the goals of this phase? So we don't um, have a lot of the issues that can kind of arise, you know, within the organizational alignment structure. and so. You know, for example, I think I see a lot of teams kind of follow like the, like what is it like the Dave McClure ARRR funnel, which is, you know, acquisition, act, you know, activation, retention, revenue, and referrals. And that's like, I think a really old way of thinking about alignment because typically you'll have marketing focused on acquisition. You might have product uh, focused on retention and you might have sales focused on revenue. But what ultimately ends up happening there is that you have these teams that are optimizing ownership in their area and therefore like always trying to win that area. And so the end result of that is essentially we, we our channels dry up and we basically are always saying we need more leads, we need more money, we need more channels, we want more, 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 and more. And so therefore, like we really don't have anybody that's responsible or accountable for the entire revenue funnel. Mm. And so when I think about this, I think about it in the terms of how do we build loops within our funnels, right? How do we understand that, you know, sales is incredibly, it should be an incredibly tight team with, um, with the product team because they're our first line interaction with the customers when they see our product. And so it's really sales jobs to provide these feedback loops as fast as possible to product for iteration, but not anecdotal, but, you know, a data-driven, you know, strategy. And I think that um, one of the things that I I really believe in is that like version one of product is going to be really bad and version 100 is going to be really bad. So it's our job as a team to figure out how do we get these feedback loops as fast as possible so we can make very good product decisions that are based on, you know, the things that we care about. 
And so, you know, back to, to your to your question here is like, how do we think about the alignment of these organizations and communications? I think it is really about alignment on what stage are we in and what does that mean and what's the goal of the phase, right? And so if we are in product market fit, and that's really about customer success and early adoption and making sure that the customers are getting the value out of our early product. And so when we think about like, what does that mean for marketing? Well, it means for marketing that we are out there speaking with um, you know, our potential customers and we're really trying to understand who they are and the, and the persona that they are using and the persona that they have and why they're using our product. Where sales is really trying to build a strong process within how do we adopt, um, you know, customers early on and, and product is, is really trying to figure out, okay, what, why is somebody using my product, et cetera, and how do I communicate that and vice versa with data to the sales and marketing team. And so when I think about this, I, I try to have like an unconventional uh, conventional view on, you know, how these, how organizations handle that, because a lot of the times we try to silo um, each of those functions and therefore it creates a lack of communication and breakdown. And then very quickly we start pointing, you know, fingers because I don't have enough leads or the product isn't good enough or uh, salespeople aren't doing their jobs with the leads that I'm bringing. But if we have like a very clear niche focus on where we are as a business, it's very easy to act together on those phases and making sure that we're all focused on the same priority. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you know the goal, you can all row in the same direction and play nice together. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's the job of leadership to create the fastest loops possible because we need to understand when we test an experiment what that implication is to um, that, that funnel or the, that part of the product and communicate that with, you know, the, the highest frequency as possible, because the farther we get a, like away from that, we are just making assumptions that people are doing something because we think they are. And that's a, I think a recipe for disaster that a lot of people don't kind of equate into how they communicate with um, the functional units of the business. No kidding. Oof. Thank you. That was a great answer. Um, do you recommend sales teams compensation be structured in such a way that they are accountable for customer retention? So the short answer is no, not at all. Um, and the reason why I say that with an emphatic no is that if we were talking about like SaaS or subscription sales, well, they're very different functions. We have an acquisition functional function and then we have a retention and usage function and a success function. And so if we are actually, if we are actually building an organization that is trying to compensate um, the individual for some type of retention metrics, well then, you know, I'll get your point. So like, I guess I'll back up a little bit because obviously we want to go after our core customer, right? So the reason why I say no is that it should be evidently clear that as an organization, you're going after customers that you know are going to be successful and you're testing out new strategies that you haven't defined as successful yet. And so you don't over index on those uh, type of strategies. Therefore you should create less churn downstream in general because of that like specific and so like when I think about this, it's, I think it's incredibly important for sales individuals to be focused on the core task of sales in general mm. and really driving market that way without having effective compensation where they don't control. Because at, at the point when they onboard that new customer, a new logo for them, they actually have no more control of their actions. 
it has now gone through an onboarding process. They have transitioned it over to, um, you know, the, the success and revenue function teams to kind of carry on that relationship. And so therefore, like, why, why do we want them to be paid or held accountable for things that they can't actually control in their day-to-day -day working environment? And so when I think about that, I kind of have a, a very strong opinion on trying to separate the specific functions. And so like we provide a better customer experience. Very interesting. You're the first person to say that. So I have a follow-up question. So if, aside from having reps who are a perfect fit and of the utmost integrity and have the best intentions, if, if they're not monetarily incentivized to close the best customers, what's to keep them from making a quick sale to make their quarterly quota, even if they know in their gut that this, is, this customer is going to churn in 90 days? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know that's a, a part of it too. And I come back to kind of like my original statement is that what, what the, the sales organization's job to do with product and with marketing is to really identify like, and I guess, I mean, this changed because I'm, I'm really thinking in context of like an account-based strategy is like, we understand our account list. We understand the organizations that we want to go after and why we're going after them. And so like, we won't see a lot of variance within our, our customer acquisition strategy. However, you know, if you, I can see the, the case being made and probably why some of the individuals are saying that uh, it's, it's in terms of yes, is that if we don't have that well-defined and we're leaving it up to the reps to define that, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to game the system, right? I'm going to bring in anything as fast as possible because I don't have to worry about it downstream. And, and if that's the case and we start seeing those behaviors develop, well, I think it's a, a great indication for when you do change your comp plan to um, fix those behaviors because comp plans will ultimately dictate what you're trying to optimize for. And then every single rep, no matter where they are on the revenue chain, are going to optimize and game that for themselves. And so I think you have to be very cautious of that. And so obviously I'm being platitudinal with the no, um, but I say that because like I really try to streamline the customer experience in a way that is going to give the best experience where they're not feel like they're being sold over time by that same individual or, you know, so I don't know. I have several opinions as you can see on this. No, that makes sense. I appreciate you expanding on that a little bit. How do you coach sales teams up on properly setting expectations for recurring revenue customers? Yeah, this is, I think, a really interesting uh, question. So I think it comes around expectation and leverage. And let me tell you what I mean by that. A lot of the times we are feature function selling to a prospect which is actually a commoditized way of doing something. And so because of that, we're actually setting expectations that are probably meant to be broken from when a customer actually gets into the product experience. And that's because we're telling the rose glasses, colored glasses version of that story. And so one of the things that, you know, I really like to focus my time on with reps is that actually how do we build leverage as reps to the current customer? So for example, we do that by asking very good questions on what is it that you want out of a program like this? What gets you excited? Mm -hmm. what, what type of metrics are you going to drive when you start using our, our, our product? Or, you know, why is this important to you and how are you going to look at this and communicate this internally to your organization? And so what I'm trying to do there is I'm actually trying to flip the script on them. And so when they onboard or they get into our system, if something doesn't feel right, 
or if they're not getting the value out of it, well, we can come back to them and say, hey, listen, in our conversation, you actually told me that this is what you were really looking for and this is how you wanted it to be measured. And so far, I actually don't see that action that we agreed to when we were going through the, the sales process. Was there something that broke down in that communication or do you need help learning how to kind of do the function that you need to get the value out of it? And that really creates a really good experience because it drives them to really want to learn how to use it to bring business value back to the organization. And it doesn't make them point fingers at us because of product problems. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I appreciate your insight in this. I know you have your hands in so many different sales organizations and have had you know, so much experience, especially with your insight into Revenue Collective and all the sales executives that you interact with um, through that group. So yeah, I appreciate that answer. Do you have anything else to add to that? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that it's just, that's a matter of like, how do we coach reps to do it correctly, right? And mm -hmm. that's a solution-based selling approach versus, you know, the transactional selling approach. And uh, it's very hard to execute uh, because they're uncomfortable questions to flip the script for reps. And so it's not something that comes very quickly. It's, it's, it's a really a pattern of change to get, you know, your, your reps to do something like that, where they're not only building great relationships with them, but they're challenging their customers to put the, the onus on them to get the value that they want out of the product. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the best way to do it. I mean, how else will you uncover objections and, you know, figure out if it's the right fit and really sell outcomes and not, you know, widgets and features like you said earlier. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of more questions here. What do you think sales teams should be doing right now, both to make sales now and to be in the best position for maximum success once we're past the acute phase of this global crisis? Yeah. So I think it's really about like education um, and this education from a digital perspective. And so if I, if I had a sales team that I was talking to right now, what I would want them to do is try to bring all their customers together, you know, provide a platform where their customers could start talking about like what's working, what's not working and things like that, where you can use that information to um, leverage kind of like the growth out of this. And I think that's incredibly important right now versus kind of just direct selling where if you can get your customers together talking about strategies together, well, they're going to be your, you know, your closest allies as you come out of this. And, and if you can walk them through that, like your referrals and recommendations are going to come in droves very quickly as you have completely changed the way they think about things like during a time of crisis. Yes. Building a community. I mean, what an amazing retention strategy for any sort of membership or subscription type of business. Um, if you can build those relationships, both with between, you know, the company and the customer and the customer and other customers, um, that creates pretty, some pretty inextricable ties and really kind of, it's your tentacles deep down into their business. Um, that is a fantastic point. Thank you. Uh, what are one to three pieces of advice you give sales VPs competing in the subscription economy right now? And is that any different than what you would have said pre COVID-19? Hmm. Yeah, I think, I think this is, I think the, it's, it's, it's probably one piece of advice and, and I guess, you know, it might, it might've been different actually. I don't know the answer to that, you know, personally, but I think the biggest advice right now as a leader of an organization is that this is the perfect time to start doing a couple things and that's realign re-strengthen the relationships internally with, and with your customers because this is a really interesting time where you can go to the people in your organization or the people uh, or your core customer base 
and be completely vulnerable and empathetic without any kind of mindset of selling anything. Mm-hmm. And so I think that you should take advantage of it. Like I'd be talking to my best customers, like what's happening right now? How can I help? Is there anything that's not working because of this current situation that I can bring back to product that maybe we can implement and fix for you? So things like this are going to strengthen um, coming out of this. And I think the second point actually uh, is take this time to restructure your process if things aren't working or build content or build a arsenal of tools that your reps can use out of this or messaging or things like that, mm-hmm. where you're ready to you know, aim and fire when this thing is you know, passed. And um, I don't know if I see enough people doing that right now when we have this much downtime. Yeah, this is the perfect time to go and and clean out the closet and um, get rid of things that aren't working, refine your SOPs and do stuff that we're never, ever going to get to otherwise that will ultimately strengthen us in our ability to to sell and and be dominant when the economy does pick back up again, which it will. So, Yeah. yeah, that's great. Last question. I'm a firm believer that sales makes the world go round and we have a tremendous responsibility as salespeople to get the economy moving again. How can we speed up that process? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I, I believe about, I believe that too. I mean, yeah, you know, sales is a driver of purchasing, which is, um, you know, how this economy grows. I, I think the thing that I think about when you say that is that we need to remember like the things that we can't control right now. And, you know, unfortunately, like this is one of those outcomes that we probably can't control as a, as an executive where, it's going to be really hard for us to control our influence in the sales process right now. So therefore driving, you know, the sales. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the reverse of that is what can we control? And that comes back to the previous question is that we can really control the relationship side of our business and our customers. And I think that if we do that, like customers are going to feel a lot better about purchasing again when they have the time to do it. Because if we come back to a cold start, it's going to take a long time to build momentum up again. And that's mm-hmm. going to affect the economy and, and build a longer tail. And so when I think about this, is I, I, the first thing that comes to mind is like, let's control what we can control. And that's bringing value to the people that you know, are important to us in the industry, our customers, our teammates, et cetera, et cetera, and build strategy off of that. And so when we are ready to move, we're moving at double the speed than we had the capacity to do beforehand. Love it. Any final thoughts before I sign us off, Dallas? You know, I'm ready. Uh, you know, you and I are both here in Colorado. I think I'm ready for the ready for the summer, honestly. Ready for some good weather. Oh my gosh, I know. We got a foot of snow over the weekend and it's just unbelievable <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> to <know>. me. <laughs> anyway, thank you again to Dallas Hoganson for his fantastic insights and advice. Check out today's show notes at subscriptioncoach.com slash podcast. And while you're there, sign up for my weekly newsletter where I curate and summarize the best content on subscription sales and sales team recruiting on the web every week. And I want to introduce a quick new offer that myself and the team of amazing sales recruiters that I work with are offering to help you through the COVID-19 crisis. For recruiting contracts signed by June 30th of this year, 2020, We will offer a one-year candidate replacement guarantee, a four-day in-person training session, the craft metrics, aptitude, and coaching profile, and 90-day payment terms. Email amanda at subscriptioncoach.com and let's talk about your team. We'll see you next time on sales in the subscription economy.